This is The Engine Room of Democracy, a podcast series that explores how the rules and values of constitutional democracy work every day in our government and in our lives. Here we will explore major questions facing America. How do we keep government institutions accountable to citizens? How do democracies control military force? What is lawful warfare? How do we enforce it? How do the courts enforce their judgments? How do we honor the right of privacy while our security forces use electronic tools to track down bad guys? I'm your host, John Hamry, here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Each week, I sit down with remarkable individuals who had senior government positions to discuss these questions. We explore together what it means to be a government of laws. Hello, everybody. This is John Hamry, and I welcome you to this session of the Engine Room of Democracy. I'm so pleased today. This is a unique opportunity because we're going to talk with Sean O'Keefe. You know, I rather kiddingly said to Sean, I think that you'd have to go back to James Madison to find anybody that had the background that Sean O'Keefe has in government. He was chief clerk for the Senate Defense Appropriations Committee. He was secretary of the Navy. He was undersecretary, the comptroller for the Department of Defense, for a time was the deputy head of OMB, and he also was the administrator for the National Aeronautics and Space Agency, a remarkable career. And so, Sean, welcome. We're delighted to have you here. Uh, We're going to explore some very interesting thoughts today about rule of law and the relationship of the executive and legislative branches. But, Sean, welcome. Thank you. Oh, thank you, John. It's a great pleasure to be with you, as always, over our three-plus decades of working together in all manner of different circumstances. I've enjoyed every minute of it. I'm sure this will be no different. I'm just delighted to be a part of the program here. Well, thank you, Sean. Let's, as I said, there's a unique opportunity talking with you because you've had such deep experiences both in the legislative branch and in the executive branch. Most of our colleagues have not had that, and so we want to dig into this unique opportunity. How do these two branches work with each other? And so just to begin, I'm going to ask you a very unfair question. You worked in both the executive and legislative branches. Where did you enjoy working most? (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the same question that could be asked of you. I suspect your answer to this question is going to be the same as mine. The answer is both. (laughs) (laughs) It really depends on where you see the opportunity to really exert the full range of potential that you can from it. If you're thinking very carefully about what the limits of the institutions are and why this very delicate balance of of bicameral as well as relationships between the executive as well as the legislative are so essential for the engine room of democracy to work properly, to borrow your theme here, I think if you focus on it from that standpoint, you find that your influence is greatest in the Congress in policy formulation, in policy options for consideration, the guidance and direction and oversight of program, but the actual execution and implementation is the executive branch, is where the authority and influence 
is most dominant, and they're both rewarding in their own different ways. As long as you don't confuse that bright line of distinction between policy formulation and program implementation, it typically works very successfully. Yes, I totally agree. I did have the privilege of working in the Hill during many of the times when you were there. And so this is some time back. But when we were there, I always felt that members of Congress had a transcending loyalty to the Congress as an institution more than to their political party affiliation. That seems to be changing. What are your thoughts about that? No, I'm very much of the same mind, John. I think we served at a period when we were both on Capitol Hill, I think, working at a time when members of Congress could transcend the partisanship that viewed the caucuses within the political you know, affiliations on both the House and Senate side, both as being you know, important for general guidance and direction of where the themes needed to go. But as a general proposition, the day in and day out process and 99% of all the issues that were brought before the committees of Congress, as well as within the consideration on the floors of the respective chambers, I always found to be very transcendent. And some of the strongest alliances were not just among and between members of the same party, but across party lines. And that almost made it an unbeatable combination, whatever that bipartisan alliance would form up among members to build that majority that made it a clear consideration of where issues could move forward. Is first and foremost, I think the focus of members at that time that I remember distinctly and what I learned from and the leaders who, who were there at the time was Article One of the Constitution was absolutely paramount. <laughs> This is, you know, that transcends party affiliation by far and away. The Congress is the principal institution for the purpose of moving the process forward. And we served also at a time when there was no consideration whatsoever that failure to act was an option. That was considered to be antithetical to everything they knew and paramount at any circumstance to move forward. You've got to make a decision because in so many ways it was an enlightened view that failure to act is a decision in and of itself and one that is not to be, you have no control over. The leaders of that time and the folks that I think we were privileged to uh, to learn from and to support and be with very much you know, viewed this as a, a responsibility that was transcendent to any partisan consideration. Yeah, that's so true. I, Of course, the friendship between Senator Ted Stevens and Senator Dan Inouye, two different parties, but they were closer than brothers. It was just amazing to see how they worked with each other. I thought for Senator Nunn, Senator John Warner, worked closely together. They saw it as a strength of the institution. It's one of those great challenges. I hope we can get back to that. Sean, let me just ask you, because of course you were chief clerk with a Defense Appropriations Subcommittee, ultimately when Senator Stevens was chairman of the Appropriations Committee. So the Constitution is very clear that only the Congress can appropriate money to operate the government. That's an astounding power. Could you tell us how you viewed the responsibilities and the authorities of the Appropriations Committee on behalf of the Congress? Yeah, you know, again, I mean, the members of the Appropriations Committee, regardless of their party affiliation, 
viewed the nature of the job as absolutely essential that they act. It was a paramount, omnipresent view. And there was always a consideration of how do you forge the common interests and concerns among members of the committee and then developed the majority from that standpoint, not whether or not it's all members of the majority voting in favor or all the members of the majority voting opposed, you know, either way, it was, it was always a combination. I don't think I ever saw a straight party line in any, you know, consideration of any issue on the committee. And it was, again, viewed as, a, as an essential responsibility to maintain national governance stability, as well as to fulfill their Article One responsibilities. And that really caught my view of this. I mean, you mentioned, you know, Stevens and, and Owe, the two of them were as close as any members could be. And as you say, they were of very different parties. And frankly, rarely did they have a situation where they were always aligned on things. They often had differences of view on many things, but they always found a way to accommodate, work through this, find that common ground, and then move forward and bring others with them. Mm-hmm. And they uh, had a habit that was probably most astonishing as the usual protocol is when a chairman leaves the room at any point, they will defer then to the next member of the majority to stand in for them as the chair. In the case of Stevens and no way, they would hand the gavel to each other. <laughs> I got to go, you take it. You know. So it was a clear indication that it was of no particular distinction. And frankly, that was... A remarkable relationship they had, but even well before that, between Stevens and John Stennis and, you know, different members that were all part of the view that the responsibility of the appropriations process was the most important thing to achieve, and so therefore eliminated obstacles to getting there. It wasn't because they didn't have plenty of spirited debates and fights about things, but, you know, they ultimately (laughs) felt held and concluded. So, Sean, let me just turn the, the lens around and say you've spoken eloquently about the importance and the power of the Appropriations Committee. You sat on the other side of the table as well when you were deputy at OMB, when you were the comptroller at DOD, when you were NASA administrator. You were on the other side of that as well. So how did it look to you from the executive branch perspective? Well, you know, again, I... I served at a time in the executive branch for George H.W. Bush, the Pentagon at that time when Dick Cheney was the Secretary of Defense and had just left Capitol Hill as the minority whip to become the Secretary of Defense. He always observed that his wife reminded him with great regularity that he was the president's second choice. (laughs) 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 And one of the things that I I learned, you really needed to respect the prerogative of the Congress, understand their responsibilities, and yet at the same time, not completely fold up your opportunities and your options for what you can do in order to make sure that they understand where you have to come from. And he, a very close colleague with several members, again, folks on the other side of the aisle, who just so happened to be very similar members. Jack Murtha was a very close friend, a Democrat from Pennsylvania who uh, was a very influential member of his caucus and of his effort over there in the House to really work through a variety of issues when Dick Cheney had been a member of the House himself. And they collaborated on a range of things well before they ever were bound at the hip in the, in the Pentagon process. 
or through the defense portfolio. So I found the relationships, and he had forged a relationship there as well. That was, again, transcendent of the partisanship. It was all about how to exert those influences, be they from the executive branch as well as the policy formulation on the congressional side, and respecting the boundaries of what can be done and then reaching accommodation when it reached that gray area. And it was a very effective time, and certainly the history of that period, the Gulf War, the challenges of the Warsaw Pact, you know, completely evaporating, the Berlin Wall falling, the Soviet Union imploding, the national security agenda open for grab, all those things made those relationships that were had at that time and those understandings of that bipartisan view, nonpartisan view of national security being above that set of concerns, it made it a much more effective process. Now, did I enjoy being a witness at any of the hearings <laughs> that I used to sit on the other side of the table? No, I don't ever remember pining for the days of <laughs> being a principal witness at a hearing. And I'm sure you felt the same way. Yeah. <laughs> it was always an experience. Oh, yeah. Sean, let me just, if we could explore this just a bit, because I think one of the things that citizens don't necessarily appreciate is the way that committees withstanding jurisdictions see themselves both as having an oversight role, but also an advocacy role for departments. Would you share with us what that was like in your experience? No question. I mean, the challenge, and I, I agree with that description of the two of the roles of oversight as well as to be advocates in certain circumstances. And achieving that balance was always the greatest challenge, I found. From a congressional perspective, the oversight was a most effective means for the purpose of influencing the conduct of how programs were implemented, how programs were managed consistent with congressional intent and what they had in mind. And they viewed that congressional process as a mechanism for the purpose of really exerting that kind of influence. From an administration standpoint, executive branch, the goal was to recruit advocates in order to find see it your way in terms of how you intended to proceed with the program. And so it forced an element of accommodation, of communication, of open dialogue, that was outside of the realm of the formal congressional hearings in which bombast and everything else is usually an element of the, uh, the characterization of inquiry. And so as a result, this became a circumstance where you were motivated to do an awful lot of negotiation, to work through how do I move members of Congress or committee jurisdictions or whatever from being purely in a standoffish oversight role and instead become advocates of a solution so you can move forward to implement the intent that they had expressed. And that was always uh, a tricky balance, but it was one that, again, motivated that, that level of proper governance structure and division between the branches of government. And at its core was trust. I mean, people trusted each other to be truthful with each other and to be objective in their goals. To the extent that that trust was violated, yes, that was the last time you ever had a chance to do that. Yep, that's exactly right. You and I have mostly people who've lost that. It completely destroys effectiveness when the, the trust is not there anymore. 
Let me shift just a bit to kind of contrast the way that the Congress has evolved over the last 20, 30 years. I remember the first year I was on the staff of the Senate Armed Services Committee, our bill that year was five pages long. Last year, the authorization bill was 2,200 pages. You know, there is a sharp, sharp evolution away from the old days of kind of giving strong guidance and now imposing management. How do you think about that? I lament the same condition. I just came and recognize it. But I must also say, whether it was as the clerk on the defense appropriations bill or whether it was as controller of the defense department or an agency head or department head, in any of those capacities I ever served, I always admired your five-page eloquence of <laughs> the capacity to keep it to that limit uh, within the authorizing process. It made an opportunity to work through those challenges that much easier, that's for sure, because it wasn't directive. And what it is, in my mind, is a clear indication. It is an absolute demonstration of the accelerating decline of the comity and the trust we just talked about. When everybody is, is absolutely convinced that the other side, by definition, before you even start the dialogue, cannot be trusted and is not somebody I want to deal with, you, the immediate default action is to then proscribe every element of exactly what is behind the congressional intent. And that becomes unbelievably cumbersome. And each time the administration ignores those congressional concerns and seeks to move around it, it merely serves to intensify the volume of prescription and further you know, turns those five pages into 2,200 pages in which there's direction that is attempts to try to leave no doubt about what the circumstances and no ambiguity. No, and quite the contrary, what it does is creates yet another series of actions that folks will use inside the administration to get around those limitations and creative interpretations and a manner of torture to the law <laughs> what the intent was that contributes more to delay and gridlock than ever before. So we have basically ground ourselves into full stop with the complete collapse of this process at this stage in the game is my bottom line conclusion of what the, the challenge is on this. Both sides have forgotten what the objective was. Yep, that's right. Also, what we've seen in recent years has been reformomania. You know, these bills now are absolutely chocked full of direction from the Congress on how the executive branch should be organized, you know, at least in the Defense Department. Three years ago, there was a directive to create a chief management officer. This year, they want to remove the chief management officer. It's just, it's wild. Again, your thoughts? Yeah, dictating organizational construct for implementing policy turns into leadership inertia and management into a slavish compliance oversight process with little accountability for what the results are. And that's the biggest challenge. What comes from it is a creativity on the part of all human beings. And when you're told to do something in a way that you're not particularly happy with doing it, you do that so in a manner that is the least necessary in order to be compliant, so you can check the box. But in the process, you spend all that creative time 
you know, working through that kind of knothole as opposed to trying to accomplish the objective, which is to manage and implement the program, the policy, the prescription of how you want to go forward you know, on behalf of the people we serve. And when you lose sight of that objective, you get into this kind of nonsense. And it's more and more a case where, again, this is one where the Congress, I think, has become frustrated with the conduct of the administration and as a result then sought to reverse that by overly prescribing what they think the solution ought to be, only to find that that just leads to another set of arguments about, again, process, not about results. I think that's so true. And ultimately, it erodes the stature of the Congress as well, because if it spends all its time engineering little details that really are the prerogative of the executive branch, it really keeps the Congress away from its primary responsibility, which is to define the broad directions of American policy. And it just strikes me as it's, it's a very counterproductive direction that we're in. John, let me ask you about lobbying. You know, kind of in the popular culture, the word lobbying, lobbyists is kind of seen as a very negative thing. But the Constitution in the Bill of Rights, the first article, specifically states that citizens have a right to petition the government. So lobbying, it seems to me, is not only a constitutionally protected right, but it's also an important part of the process. Would you describe for us how you saw lobbying from a congressional standpoint as well as from an executive branch perspective? Sure. I fully agree with your description and assessment of where this has evolved to, to the point where the very term lobbyist conjures up this very pejorative kind of description and an unseemly behavior that's all done, you know, independent of what's in the public's interest. No, that's not true. You know, there are any number of circumstances where, to be sure, you know, the lobbyist or an external corporate interest or citizens group or trade association or whatever is going to try to attempt to advance their interpretation of what's in their best interests. No shock there. Okay? And it, that's the intent behind the sure, sure. opportunity to do so, to petition the government for the redress of, of, of grievances, all those things that, again, is part of the which embedded in the constitutional prerogative. That said, by closing it off and completely eliminating the pejorative <laughs> description and, and seemingly stomping out the unseemly behavior, number one, we haven't seen an end to the unseemly behavior. Everybody <laughs> just figures out, you know, creative ways to get around it and deal with it. And this seems to be, you know, inevitably water finding a void, you know, an opportunity right, right. to penetrate. And worse yet, what happens is you no longer have as much a advocacy of policy and process solutions. Yes, from those who seem to have the vested interest, but for which the government is derived, deprived of that insight that are from those who are the closest to the execution and the actual conduct of that policy. It almost forecloses now an in-depth understanding of what the implications will be of the policy that is being promulgated by the Congress mm -hmm. or the programs that's being administered by the executive branch, when you're devoid of any real understanding of how that affects those who actually have to comply with it, then follow through with the approach and reach the objective of what is going to be to the benefit of the American citizens. And as a consequence, 
you know, if you get it right, it's by pure accident. <laughs> because, you know, I don't have that sense of, of insight that goes along with it. I know I couldn't have done my job on behalf of the Armed Services Committee if it weren't for lobbyists. It didn't mean that I took everything they told me to be fully true. A good lobbyist always told you the truth. Even if it was bad news, they always told you the truth. But it always wasn't the whole truth, you know. But it was just an important way that you could get an understanding on what's going on inside the Department of Defense. So it was just absolutely crucial. And I think that we need to come back to a more mature uh, sense of the crucial role that lobbying plays is in a positive way in our form of government. I agree. One sidebar of that, one of the things that has been implemented now as a result of this, bipartisan, it is that, of course, <laughs> where everybody is piled on to condemn those who are lobbyists, and so therefore we're going to stomp that out and eradicate it, and it's uh, you know, become a political talking point in every campaign. problem is we've also been implemented executed, legislated, and enacted a whole range of ethics rules, essentially make sure that those who are serving in government have absolutely no real association <laughs> with any of the delivery of these things, and in many cases, can't even go exchange and do that again after they've left the government. Now, there's all kinds of good reasons. I am completely an advocate of ethics law and rules that govern the behavior to be sure that every public servant, regardless of how you're in those capacities, serve at the pleasure of the American people and at the, in the best interest of the American people, and to do so for not benefiting their own circumstance. That said, we have made it virtually impossible now yes. for anybody who has any experience doing things to then be in a position to help guide that process, either as lobbyists or as ultimately members of the public service themselves in a later different part of their life. And that has become a real deterrent to expertise, understanding, and it is to the detriment of the public at large as a consequence of this, because then you get this litigious environment in which we live. Yes. It settles all things in yes. courts, which usually is not expeditious, and usually isn't terribly fulfilling. <laughs> it's just the way it you know, works out. And I think Congress also removes its responsibilities for oversight when they put everything simply on engineering purity when they select people that serve. I mean, that's just nonsense. But let me ask about, often you hear people say the staffs are too large and too powerful. And you have members of Congress that aren't in Washington very much these days, you know, for just for a couple of days, but the staff is here full time. You obviously were the head of a very, very powerful staff. But can you share with us what your broader thoughts are about the way in which we staff the Congress for its legislative responsibilities? This is, again, another human nature challenge where the solution to everything when we think we don't have the depth of experience is to add more of something, as opposed to the right combination of people and talent and so forth. And the central feature on the congressional staff, I always found, never forgot, always, is that the primary thing that every staff member had to keep in mind every minute of every day is they don't have the duty to vote. That's true. That responsibility resides in those who are elected by the people and sent to that capacity. And you, therefore, when you are acting on their behalf, 
speaking for them, whether you're empowered to do so or not, you got to remember that that is not the ultimate responsibility and accountability you will bear in those kinds of circumstances. And so it gave me a moment of pause, <laughs> which was enough to say, wait a minute, can I guarantee that something is going to happen by the chairman or whoever and we're the leader in working through this, who are the rightfully elected individuals in that capacity? The answer is no. I can say, yeah, absolutely. I understand your point of view. I'm going to take that forward. And that's going to be my recommendation to the chair. You know, exerting that level of governance of yourself, of your own behavior as a staff member is important. But beyond that, I didn't find that more of a lot of folks around was going to improve the depth of expertise. It was more a case of getting the right talent in the right kind of situations to do this. And instead, every committee has decided to add more of a lot of folks for the purpose of trying to balance that, which then begins to look like a mirror image of the same department or the same agency or the same function they're trying to oversee and actually influence the policy in dealing with. So the dilemma is how much time in my mind, members of Congress, duly elected individuals who are in this capacity, spend in time in Washington. Is that necessarily a measure of their merit? No. Dealing with their constituencies back home is also a measure of merit. And how do you infuse more staff accountability and behavior into that feature to understand where that line of demarcation is? Yeah. Yeah. Sean, let me ask you about the role of Congress when it deals with the secret activities of the government. You know, I mean, by definition, you know, the Congress is a public forum. It is public debates. It's open, transparent. That's the only way you get national policy. But there are things that the government must do in secret, either through its collection activities or for clandestine operations, et cetera. And the Congress still has a responsibility for overseeing that. How well do we do that? Do you have changes that you would recommend here? This is really a hard one because in so many ways, you've described this precisely right. There are activities of the United States government that must be conducted that need to be conducted in a very closed environment because the mere existence of the information would identify the proverbial sources and methods and understanding of how the information is gathered, or it would be an expression of policy that could be easily misinterpreted. So as a consequence, both of those require a tremendous amount of discretion on the part of the executive branch and the legislature. And by and large, among all the things we've talked about here in the course of this discussion of congressional and executive uh, relationships, this one seems to have worked better than most. And in large measure, it's because of that awesome responsibility at both sides of the executive branch and the Congress view of their responsibility to maintain that information in a way that does not compromise its origins or its ultimate conduct. And, and working through this. And so there have been a few seminal events that have certainly occurred in the last few decades, 9-11 being the most distinctive of all of them, in which there is much more attention to how the scrutiny of the intelligence community and the activities mm -hmm. and classified secret information is handled and so forth. 
that I think have done by and large some important things to really bolster that relationship. It has become much more cumbersome, much more difficult to work through, and yet even with that we find a rare set of circumstances in which there have been breaches of that conduct on either side of this. We are in a unique time though, I must I hasten to add, right now, the current situation in which the intelligence community hasn't been under this kind of siege. It is not unusual that the intelligence community is under siege or under question, but this is absolutely over the top in terms of the kind of scrutiny as well as distrust of it. It is not of their own making, and that is one that I find to be very, very alarming, more so than any other aspect of this. And that is, in my mind, a, a constitutional responsibility the executive branch bears that's going to be in need of some very, very critical repair. Yep, absolutely. I've had the privilege of working on very, very classified things and needing the help of the Congress. They always were constructive. That didn't mean it was without argument. It didn't mean it wasn't without real contention, but it was always mutually reinforcing and positive. Sean, let me just wrap up by saying this has been, a, for me, a very great personal privilege to have a chance to recount with you both personal life experiences, but also to share with our listeners this absolutely fundamental dimension of American democracy. It's grounded in the Constitution. It's built upon the institutions that we've created to carry out the directions of the Constitution. It depends on procedures that both of us know and honor. And it ultimately depends on a political consensus to make it work. Those are the key things I've heard. Let me just turn to you for any concluding thoughts or comments you might have, Sean. John, I, as always, you know, find your insight and your assessment of such things is to be quite insightful as well as accuracy to the greatest. And so I agree fully with your concluding assessment here, but would add that the mix of the critical ingredient that the relationship between Congress and the executive branch really relies heavily on the exercise of civility, of comity, of shared values in that constitutional framework, understanding that those virtues uh, all require a lot of care, feeding, and attention in order to make sure that it happens. And unfortunately, it's been in short supply in recent years, we've seen. Whether that's a product of our day or the culture we live in or the environment we're involved in, uh, shared governance and democracy take a lot of work. And you can't just agree to disagree, go to different sides of the room and start pulling out grenades. You know? <laughs> that is not the conclusion of this. And this whole process, brilliantly conceived, you know, you know, two centuries ago, was, was designed for the purpose of trying to force an accommodation and an understanding of differing roles and a balance of power to assure that neither exercise persecution of the other. And as a result, it's, it's hard. I mean, this is a, this is a, a, balance, a tough time. I, I realize over time how incredibly fortunate you and I were to have served yeah. Yes. At a time, yes. this was not easy stuff by any means. It was extremely difficult and an awful lot of energy went into it. But it was all for the for objectives that you could clearly understand 
and the mission was always paramount of what it is you were trying to accomplish on the outcome. And in the end, we were all forced to reach some understanding because to fail was simply not an option. It's been a real privilege to talk with you, Sean, really. I'm so grateful. I've had the privilege of knowing you for 30 years, and uh, you've always been a consummate statesman, a leader, a patriot. I'm so grateful. Thank you for taking the time to do this today. Thank you, John. You're very kind. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 